Part One, Chapter Eleven of the Fur Country. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fur Country by Jules Verne, Part One, Chapter Eleven, Along the Coast. Coronation Gulf, the large estuary dotted with the islands forming the Duke of York Archipelago, which the party had now reached, was a sheet of water with irregular banks, let in, as it were, into the North American continent. At its western angle opened the mouth of the copper mine, and on the east a long narrow creek called Bathurst Inlet ran into the mainland, from which stretched the jagged broken coast with its pointed capes and rugged promontories. Ending in that confusion of straits, sounds, and channels which gives such a strange appearance to the maps of North America. On the other side, the coast turned abruptly to the north beyond the mouth of the Coppermine and ended in Cape Christenstern. After consulting with Sergeant Long, Lieutenant Hobson decided to give his party a day's rest here. The exploration, properly so called, which was to enable the lieutenant to fix upon a suitable site for the establishment of a fort was now really about to begin. The company had advised him to keep as much as possible above the seventieth parallel and on the shores of the Arctic Ocean. To obey his orders, Hobson was obliged to keep to the west, for on the east, with the exception perhaps of the land of Boothia, crossed by the seventieth parallel, the whole country belongs rather to the Arctic Circle, and the geographical conformation of Boothia is as yet but imperfectly known. After carefully ascertaining the latitude and longitude, and verifying his position by the map, the lieutenant found that he was a hundred miles below the seventieth degree. But beyond Cape Crustenstern, the coastline, running in a northeasterly direction, abruptly crosses the seventieth parallel at a sharp angle near the one hundred and thirtieth meridian, and at about the same elevation as Cape Bathurst, the spot named as a rendezvous by Captain Creventy. He must therefore make for that point, and should the site appear suitable, the new fort would be erected there. There, said the lieutenant to his subordinate Long, we shall be in the position ordered by the company. There the sea, open for a great part of the year, will allow the vessels from Bering Strait to come right up to the fort, bringing us fresh provisions and taking away our commodities. Not to mention, added Sergeant Long, that our men will be entitled to double pay all the time they are beyond the seventieth parallel. Of course that is understood, replied Hobson, and I dare say they will accept it without a murmur. Well, then, Lieutenant, said Long simply, we have now only to start for Cape Bathurst. But as the day of rest had been promised, the start did not actually take place until the next day, June 6. The second part of the journey would naturally be very different from the first. The rules with regard to the sledges, keeping their rank, need no longer be enforced, and each couple drove as it pleased them. Only short distances were traversed at a time, halts were made at every angle of the coast, and the party often walked. Lieutenant Hobson only urged two things upon his companions, not to go further than three miles from the coast, and to rally their forces twice a day, at twelve o'clock and in the evening. At night they all encamped in tents. The weather continued very fine, and the temperature moderate, maintaining a mean height of fifty-nine degrees Fahrenheit above zero. 
Two or three times sudden snowstorms came on, but they did not last long, and exercised no sensible influence upon the temperature. The whole of the American coast, between Capes Christenstern and Perry, comprising an extent of more than 250 miles, was examined with the greatest care between the 6th and 20th of June. Geographical observations were accurately taken, and Hobson, most effectively aided by Thomas Black, was able to rectify certain errors in previous marine surveys, whilst the primary object of the expedition, the examination into the quality and quantity of the game in the surrounding districts, was not neglected. Were these lands well stocked with game? Could they count with certainty not only on a good supply of furs, but also of meat? Would the resources of the country provide a fort, with provisions in the summer months at least? Such were the grave questions which Lieutenant Hobson had to solve, and which called for immediate attention. We give a summary of the conclusions at which he arrived. Game, properly so called, of the kind for which Corporal Joliffe, amongst others, had a special predilection, was not abundant. There were plenty of birds of the duck tribe, but only a few polar hares, difficult of approach, poorly represented the rodents of the north. There seemed, however, to be a good many bears about. Marbra and Sabine had come upon fresh traces of several. Some were even seen and tracked, but as a rule they kept at a respectful distance. In the winter, however, driven by famine from higher latitudes, there would probably be more than enough of these ravenous beasts prowling about the shores of the Arctic Ocean. "'There is certainly no denying,' said Corporal Joliffe, "'that bear's flesh is very good eating, when once it is in the larder. But there is something very problematical about it beforehand, and it's always just possible that the hunters themselves may meet the fate they intended for the bears.' This was true enough. It was no use counting upon the bears to provision their fort." Fortunately, traces were found of herds of a far more useful animal, the flesh of which is the principal food of the Indians and Eskimo. We allude to the reindeer, and Corporal Joliffe announced with the greatest satisfaction that there were plenty of these ruminants on this coast. The ground was covered with the lichen to which they are so partial, and which they cleverly dig out from under the snow. There could be no mistake as to the footprints left by the reindeer, as, like the camel, they have a small, nail-like hoof, with a convex surface. Large herds, sometimes numbering several thousand animals, are seen running wild in certain parts of America. Being easily domesticated, they are employed to draw sledges, and they also supply the factories with excellent milk, more nourishing than that of cows. Their dead bodies are not less useful. Their thick skin provides clothes, their hair makes very good thread, and their flesh is palatable, so that they are really the most valuable animals to be found in these latitudes, and Hobson, being assured of their presence, was relieved from half his anxiety. As he advanced, he had also reason to be satisfied with regard to the fur-bearing animals. By the little streams rose many beaver lodges and muskrat tunnels badgers, lynxes, ermines, wolverines, sables, polecats, etc., frequented these districts, hitherto undisturbed by hunters. They had thus far come to no trace of the presence of man, and the animals had chosen their refuge well. 
Footprints were also found of the fine blue and silver foxes, which are becoming more and more rare, and the fur of which is worth its weight in gold. Sabine and MacNab might many a time have shot a very valuable animal on this excursion, but the lieutenant had wisely forbidden all hunting of the kind. He did not wish to alarm the animals before the approaching season, that is to say, before the winter months when the fur becomes thicker and more beautiful. It was also desirable not to overload the sledges. The hunters saw the force of his reasoning, but for all that their fingers itched when they came within shot range of a sable or some valuable fox. Their lieutenant's orders were, however, not to be disobeyed. Polar bears and birds were, therefore, all that the hunters had to practice upon in this second stage of their journey. The former, however, not yet rendered bold by hunger, soon scampered off, and no serious struggle with them ensued. The poor birds suffered for the enforced immunity of the quadrupeds. White-headed eagles, huge birds with a harsh, screeching cry, fishing-hawks, which build their nests in dead trees and migrate to the Arctic regions in the summer, snow-buntings with pure white plumage, wild geese, which afford the best food of all the answers tribe, ducks with red heads and black breasts, ash-coloured crows, a kind of mocking-jay of extreme ugliness, eider-ducks, scooters, or black divers, etc., etc., whose mingled cries awake the echoes of the Arctic regions, fell victims by hundreds to the unerring aim of Marbra and Sabine. These birds haunt the high latitudes by millions, and it would be impossible to form an accurate estimate of their number on the shores of the Arctic Ocean. Their flesh formed a very pleasant addition to the daily rations of biscuit and corned beef, and we can understand that the hunters laid up a good stock of them in the fifteen days during which they were debarred from attacking more valuable game. There would be no lack of animal food, the magazines of the company would be well stocked with game, and its offices filled with furs and traders, but something more was wanted to ensure success to the undertaking. Would it be possible to obtain a sufficient supply of fuel to contend with the rigour of an arctic winter at so elevated a latitude? Most fortunately the coast was well wooded, the hills which sloped down towards the sea were crowned with green trees, amongst which the pine predominated. Some of the woods might even be called forests, and would constitute an admirable reserve of timber for the fort. Here and there Hobson noticed isolated groups of willows, poplars, dwarf birch-trees, and numerous thickets of arbutus. At this time of the warm season all these trees were covered with verdure and were an unexpected and refreshing sight to eyes so long accustomed to the rugged, barren, polar landscape. The ground at the foot of the hills was carpeted with a short herbage, devoured with avidity by the reindeer, and forming their only sustenance in winter. On the whole, then, the lieutenant had reason to congratulate himself on having chosen the northwest of the American continent for the foundation of a new settlement. We have said that these territories, so rich in animals, were apparently deserted by men. The travellers saw neither Eskimo, who prefer the districts round Hudson's Bay, nor Indians, who seldom venture so far beyond the Arctic Circle. 
and indeed in these remote latitudes hunters may be overtaken by storms or be suddenly surprised by winter and cut off from all communication with their fellow-creatures we can easily imagine that lieutenant hobson was by no means sorry to meet any rival explorers what he wanted was an unoccupied country a deserted land suitable as a refuge for the fur-bearing animals and in this matter he had the full sympathy of mrs barnett who as the guest of the company naturally took a great interest in the success of its schemes fancy then the disappointment of the lieutenant when on the morning of the twentieth june he came to an encampment but recently abandoned it was situated at the end of a narrow creek called darnley bay of which cape perry is the westernmost point there at the foot of a little hill were the stakes which had served to mark the limits of the camp and heaps of cinders the extinct embers of the fires the whole party met at this encampment and all understood how great a disappointment it involved for lieutenant hobson what a pity he exclaimed i would rather have met a whole family of polar bears but i dare say the men who encamped here are already far off said mrs barnett very likely they have returned to their usual hunting grounds that is as it may be replied the lieutenant if these be the traces of eskimo they are more likely to have gone on than to have turned back and if they be those of indians they are probably like ourselves seeking a new hunting district and in either case it will be very unfortunate for us but said mrs barnett can we not find out to what race the travellers do belong can't we ascertain if they are eskimo or indians from the south i should think tribes of such a different origin and of such dissimilar customs would not encamp in the same manner mrs barnett was right they might possibly solve the mystery after a thorough examination of the ground jasper hobson and others set to work carefully examining every trace every object left behind every mark in the ground but in vain there was nothing to guide them to a decided opinion the bones of some animals scattered about told them nothing and the lieutenant much annoyed was about to abandon the useless search when he heard an exclamation from mrs joliffe who had wandered a little way to the left all hurried towards the young canadian who remained fixed to the spot looking attentively at the ground before her as her companions came up she said you are looking for traces lieutenant well here are some mrs joliffe pointed to a good many footprints clearly visible in the firm clay these might reveal something for the feet of the indians and eskimo as well as their boots are totally different from each other but what chiefly struck lieutenant hobson was the strange arrangement of these impressions they were evidently made by a human foot a shod foot but strange to say the ball alone appeared to have touched the ground the marks are very numerous close together often crossing one another but confined to a very small circle jasper hobson called the attention of the rest of the party to this singular circumstance these were not made by a person walking he said nor by a person jumping added mrs barnett for there is no mark of a heel no said mrs joliffe these footprints were left by a dancer she was right as further examination proved they were the marks left by a dancer and a dancer engaged in some light and graceful exercise for they were neither clumsy nor deep 
But who could the light-hearted individual be, who had been impelled to dance in this sprightly fashion, some degrees above the Arctic Circle? "'It was certainly not an Eskimo,' said the lieutenant. "'Nor an Indian,' cried Corporal Joliffe. "'No, it was a Frenchman,' said Sergeant Long quietly. And all agreed that none but a Frenchman could have been capable of dancing on such a spot. End of chapter 11